It has been a good day in church already. It really has. And I'm uh, so excited for our kids going to camp. And you know, we had a lot going on here this morning. We really have. You know, we had a baptism, you know, missionaries in the spotlight, had communion, praying for the kids to go to camp. I mean, it's been a good day already. I want to go ahead and go on home. Yeah, we all probably got to do that. <laughs> Very excited about the passage we get to study today. We're going to focus on just three verses because, you know, we've had so much going on. So we're going to keep it kind of short today. You know, I heard one time about a pastor, this was long ago, back in the days when they didn't have children's church. And there was a pastor at a Southern Baptist church, loved to preach, but people always complained about his long sermons. And so he didn't like limiting his preaching, but he developed a really clever way of keeping his sermons short. What he would do is when he got in the pulpit, he put a lifesaver in his mouth and he began speaking. And when the lifesaver was gone, he would immediately wrap it up. It was always about 20 minutes, and he kind of had a you know, little, little deal with the Lord. He's like, Lord, you know, as long as the lifesaver's you know, still there, I'm going to keep preaching. Well, one day, <clears throat> church was kind of beginning, and he noticed one of the buttons on his suit was about to come off. So he grabbed it, and he put it in his pocket, and the music was over, and he reached in his pocket to get his lifesaver. He actually put that suit, that, that, that coat button in his mouth instead of the lifesaver. And he just kept going and going and going. He thought, man, this is like the miracle of the loaves and fishes, you know? Man, this lifesaver just won't go away. So he kept preaching. He kept preaching. Five hours later, later, all the kids were crying. All the men were asleep. And finally, his wife's exasperated, threw a hymnal at him. And all the ladies in the church threw a hymnal at him. And they had to call it quits for the day, all right? So here we go. Now, the title today is Joyride. And we're going to keep it brief for you today. In Romans chapter 5, one of the clear marks of a Christian is rejoicing. It's rejoy. Now, joy is not happiness. Happiness is always depending on what's happening in your life, all right? And when we talk about joy as a Christian, it's not a denial of reality. It's not laughing while someone takes your wallet, all right? But if you're a follower of Jesus, there is an undeniable joy about your life. Joy, as for a Christian, is a kind of contentment. It's a serenity. There's a peace that just says, no matter what's happening in your life, all is well. It doesn't mean you always have a smile on your face, but it does mean that you readily laugh and that you, you know, readily happy and that they have kind of a hopeful, positive attitude, just like Jesus did. Jesus, his last night on earth, we talked about the Last Supper, but then there was his final prayer. He went to the garden with his disciples and he had a, a long time in prayer. And John wrote down what he heard Jesus praying. And he said, Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, Lord, now I am coming to you. And I told them many things while I was with them in this world. So they would be filled with my joy. You know, you know there's this idea about Jesus being kind of morose or distant. No, not at all. Why did children love Jesus? Why do people laugh at his jokes? Things like that. Because Jesus was full of joy. And in the first half of Romans chapter 5, you and I are given three reasons for rejoicing. Now, when I read this, I have the word rejoice in my Bible three times. I read the old, new, international version. I know that doesn't make sense, all right? But the NIV came out in 1978. I read the old, new, international version. So it's a little bit different maybe from some of yours. But look at verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, we have a glorious destination. That's the first thing we have to remember that we should rejoice in. It says, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, you and I as Christians, we have the answer to the greatest philosophical question of life, and that is this. 
Is there anything else? <laughs> the answer is a resounding yes, there is. There is life after death. And based on the resurrection of Jesus, we say, yes, there is more. And in fact, it's not just any future. It's a glorious future. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up to paradise. And he heard utterances beyond the power of man to put into words. Remember there at the thief on the cross? The one thief on Jesus' side said, Lord Jesus, when you go to your kingdom, would you remember me? And Jesus said, today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, glorious inheritance, glorious future. Number two, the reason you and I should rejoice is there's a glorious transformation that is going to take place in us. Look at verses three and four. Not only that, he says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now you look at that and you think, rejoice in suffering. You mean to say God is telling me that when I'm hurting and I'm in pain that I should rejoice in that? You know, what kind of a nut is Paul anyway? And by the way, that's not all he said on the subject of suffering. Philippians chapter 1, he said to the Philippian church, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. You see what he says there? It has been granted to you that you should suffer. That's a crazy thing to say. It really is. No one has ever granted something that it's unpleasant or unwanted. Melanie has never granted me kale at supper. You know, like, I grant you kale. You know, <laughs> if anything, it's the exact opposite. What she actually says is quit your whining and eat your dinner or you're going to go to bed without dessert, you know? How do you get to the place where you can rejoice in being granted suffering? Paul says, we rejoice in suffering because we know. We rejoice even when we're, even when we're in pain because we know something. Our faith enables us to have kind of an insider information that other people don't have in the stock exchange of life. In the life of someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, suffering to them is just pain without purpose. For an unbeliever, suffering is the empirical evidence that life is nothing but random fate. Because yes, sometimes good people suffer. Sometimes children suffer. Sometimes sweet, sweet older people suffer. Absolutely. But what do we know? Paul says we know that suffering produces. It produces. There's a life principle at work here. In Christ, you know, when you're suffering, something is happening. Suffering accomplishes something. It's of enormous, eternal, eternal value. Our suffering in life is actually a tool in God's hands to prepare you and I for the next life, for what is to come. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, our light and momentary affliction is a abundantly producing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory beyond all measure. Did you catch that, that word again? It's doing something. I don't know where you might be today, what you might be going through, but just to have that calm assurance that you can rejoice. Doesn't mean you have a smile on your face when life is hard, but you can rejoice in the depth of your heart knowing God is at work in me. 
and he is preparing me there for that glorious future. There's a glorious transformation taking place. And so in Christ, there's a certainty, not just a possibility in our suffering, the certainty that we are being changed. And God is transforming us into nothing less than the image of his immortal son. And the ultimate reason for this process is to prepare us for eternity. I don't, you know, people say, well, well Les, I don't understand that. I don't know that I do either. Honestly, that God is using everything in my life, including the pain that I experience, to prepare me for another life in another world that is beyond all comprehension. It cannot even be put into words and to be changed into the glorious image of Christ himself. That's what the Bible tells us. Jude chapter one. Jude's a really small book in your Bible, but boy, it packs a punch. And he kind of closes it with this. Now to him who is able to keep you without slipping or falling and to present you unblemished, blameless and faultless before the presence of his glory in triumphant joy. You see that? You just imagine in the presence of almighty God, unblemished, unblemished, blameless and faultless and in triumphant joy because I never dreamed that such a thing was possible. And yet here I am and here it is. To the one only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power unto all the ages of eternity. Amen, he says. May it be. <laughs> so there's a, there's a glorious destination. We rejoice in that. There's a glorious transformation taking place in the life of every believer, and we rejoice in that. But today, I want us to focus on this, a glorious reconciliation. Back in 1996, there was a 14-year-old girl in one of the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Her name was Tanya Cook. And Tanya ran away from home when she was 14 years old. You see, there was some tension. There was some conflict in her family's home, like any home with teenagers. And she had met an older man. He was in his 30s. And he convinced her that he loved her and her father didn't. And so this man's name was Thomas Hose. And he convinced Tanya to come and live with him. And she agreed. And it was misery for her. He used mind games to control Tanya. He convinced her that her parents didn't care that she was gone. And he would tell Tanya things like this. You're stupid. You're immature. Nobody cares about you but me. He made her change her name. He made her change her appearance. And he never let her go out of the house after dark. And for nine and a half years, she never had contact with anyone outside the home. In fact, for the first four years that she was in that house until the age of 18, she was forced to stay in the bedroom if there was ever anybody else in the house. Well, she lived in that house for 10 years. Listen to this. She was two miles from her parents the entire time. Her parents had filed missing persons reports. They were grieving. In fact, her parents divorced. They had experienced so much grief over all this. It was just terrible for everybody involved. And here's the sentence that struck me from the newspaper article. It's, the reporter said this, it took her a decade to build the confidence to come forward. 10 years to build the confidence to come forward. Here's what happened. In 2006, she began going to a little convenience store called JJ's Deli Mart 
two blocks from the house. And she'd go every day for the same thing, a Coke and a newspaper. She was so lonely. Now, 24 years old, for six months, she visited the store and she began to strike up conversations with the owner and and his family. And one day in a frightened voice, she said, I just want to tell you all, my name is not Nikki Allen. My name is really Tanya Cook. And if you'll look at the website for missing persons, I'm there. Well, and then she went on to say, nobody wanted me me except my boyfriend. Well, the owner of the store, he called his son, who was a retired police officer. He immediately recognized Tanya's name. And the Spirico family that owned JJ's Deli Mart, they convinced Tanya to reach out to her family that they really did love her. And in February of 2006, Tanya Cook was reunited with her mother and her father in a beautiful, glorious, tearful reunion. And her father told the press, I just say thank you that there is a God And he brought my little girl back home. What an incredible story. Two miles from home. But she could never be reconciled to her family. So now Tanya Cook is in home and Thomas Hosen is in prison. And they are both where they belong. Tanya Cook was never kept in Thomas Hosen's house against her will. She was lied to. She was manipulated. She was deceived. And she was exploited because she believed things about herself. And she believed things about her father and their relationship that simply were not true. But once the truth came out and she had the confidence to believe something other than the lies that were being pumped into her brain day after day after day, then she was reconciled with her parents, reunited with her father, and welcomed home. And when the the lies were replaced with truth, the misery, the loneliness, and the pain was replaced with what? Love and joy. Love and joy. Look at verses 9 through 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, Paul writes, how much more, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Why do we rejoice? The third reason that we have this joy ride going right now is the incredible reality of the doctrine of reconciliation. The depth and the dynamics of our relationship with God are beyond your comprehension. Just as heaven is beyond your comprehension, just as the life-transforming work of Jesus is beyond your comprehension, the dynamics and the depth of your relationship with God is beyond your comprehension. And we rejoice in that, that we are reconciled to God. Look at verse 9 when Paul says, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. You see, Paul desperately wants something for you and me. He wants you and me to get the much more dynamic of the Christian life. And I want to ask this today. Are you a much more believer or a much less believer in Jesus? That's a very, very important question because it's going to really mean so much in your life. 
going to make such a difference in your life. Will you boldly believe much more of God than most people will believe? You see, many good Christians don't grasp the principle of proportionality. This has made a huge difference in my life. Just kind of dawned on me one day years and years ago. See, we really freely say God is great. And that's good. We need to do that. But because God is so great, we also know that he must be so good. And if his goodness, I'm sorry, his greatness is far, far beyond our comprehension, then that on the other side of the coin, his goodness to us must also be so far beyond our comprehension. And so we dare not attempt to confine his goodness to our ideas of what goodness is, all right? We cannot use any created thing as a measuring stick for the goodness of God. The kindest grandmother, the sweetest child, the most loving teacher you ever had. No, you cannot use any created thing as a measurement for the goodness of God towards you. Anytime you measure the goodness of God by any person you have ever known, it's like allowing a child to finger paint on the Mona Lisa. It really is. It diminishes his glory. He is so much more. Look at verses 10 through 11. Notice that some form of the word reconcile appears three times in two verses. He's trying to explain the tremendous work of God on your behalf and mine in two different ways. He's putting justification and reconciliation side by side for comparison and contrast because one accentuates the other. And he wants you and I to believe much more of God than we ever could on our own. Justification, what is that? All the charges have been dropped. You are declared innocent in God's sight. Reconciliation, what does he mean by that? All the enmity is gone. All the tension in the relationship, all of the uncertainty, you now have confidence that your relationship is restored and you are reunited with God. The entire Bible is a record of God's efforts to reconcile himself and humanity. We ran away and hid and he pursued us. We were naked and ashamed He made a sacrifice and he covered us. We were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. He sent the good shepherd. We were lost in a dry and weary land. He sent the living water. We were starving in our soul and he broke his body and he gave it as bread. Colossians 1, you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ. He has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Just like Jude had said, unblemished, unblemished. And so there's this massive affection in God's heart for you, no matter what you've done, where you've been, how you failed, how you still fall short. There's a massive affection beyond your comprehension in God's heart for you. Because it's almost impossible to put into words the tremendous changes that God has worked for those who believe in him. You say, I don't feel like I've changed. It doesn't matter. The fact is that you have. From God's perspective, you have been radically 
and gloriously changed. And so boldly believe, no matter what you have done, where you have been, what has happened, that God desires for you to come home, to be in his presence. That's all Tanya Cook's dad ever wanted for this little girl to come home. But she never could bring herself to believe that her father wanted her in his presence. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the gracious work of God through faith in Christ by which he changes people into the image of his beloved son, thus abolishing the hostility between them and reuniting himself in mankind. The key phrase in that definition, ladies and gentlemen, he changes people into the image of his beloved son. Do you believe that about yourself today? Do you believe that you've been changed into the image of the son that God dearly, God the Father dearly and passionately loves? So Tanya Cook, it says it took her a decade to build the confidence to come forward. You know, the language of reconciliation in your Bible has one singular purpose, for you and for me to come forward to come forward, come forward into God's presence, to go boldly into the throne room of grace. Let the reality of reconciliation give you the confidence to come forward to God, to to pick up your Bible in the morning and come forward, to get on your knees at night and come forward, to just turn on some worship music in the car and just come forward, come forward and be with your Father. And when you come forward, this will fill your heart with hope. And when you come forward, you fill your heart with hope. What happens? This gives you joy. You rejoice and life becomes a joy ride. There's a man named Henry Alford who was a a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a Bible scholar, a theologian. He was a professor at Cambridge University back in the 1800s. He was an accomplished artist, poet, musician, but he was much loved because he was always so cheerful. And he wrote a great commentary on Romans, and he said this, Not only has the reconciled man confidence that he shall escape God's wrath, but triumphant confidence and joyful hope in God. Hmm. Love that so much. Let's bow our heads together this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you to think about what it means for you what it means for you to understand this whole thing, this whole idea of reconciliation. And have you been allowing uh, shame and guilt and condemnation to dictate your relationship with your heavenly father? Have you been more like Tanya Cook? We just kind of had this sensation that your father doesn't really want you around, that he's disappointed in you, that he's discouraged by you, or that he's angry at you. Can I just tell you, if you put your heart, if you put your faith in Jesus, that is simply no longer true. And your heavenly father wants you to have the confidence to come forward, come forward in your relationship with him. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you just go before the Lord today? If it's been a struggle, been a struggle for you in your relationship with the Lord to, to feel wanted, to feel prized, Go before the Lord this morning and say, Lord, would you just impress upon my heart the reality of the reconciliation that has taken place 
in my in our relationship because of Jesus. So I ask you to go before the Lord this morning and just make that a matter of sincere prayer. You might say, I, you know, I I don't I don't struggle with that. Ask for more. Be a much more Christian today. Be a much more believer today. So I'll be quiet for a minute. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. And Lord, I just want to say that uh, I just read this passage, Father, and it's just awesome. It's awesome. And Lord, I just feel so frail and feeble to try to communicate these things to the people that I love so much. But Lord, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that for everyone here in this room, Father, beginning with me, that it could be impressed upon us just how dearly you love us, the depth of the reconciliation that's been given us in Jesus, and Lord, just the reality of the relationship that we walk in, living in your presence day by day, moment by moment. And so, Lord, I just pray that you give us your grace to boldly believe that these things are true. We are faultless, unblemished in your sight. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who's particularly discouraged, I just pray, Father, for the grace, Lord, just to come forward in their relationship with you, Lord. To come forward to you in a new and real way. Ask this in Jesus' name.